0: Now, let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48 today. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you. Feel free to stand up, grab one of those. That's our gift to you. As you turn to Matthew chapter 5, let me, let me do a review. We have been studying... The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever. And today we're going to wrap up Matthew chapter 5. We have spent the last five months or so on this chapter alone. 21 sermons. And we're not done. We're not done with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've got two more chapters Um, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus is going to teach us how to handle our finances. He's going to teach us how to handle our possessions. He's also going to teach us how to pray and fast. And he's also going to teach us, uh, well, really he provides a cure for anxiety. Anybody anxious? He's going to teach us, uh, or he's going to give us the cure for anxiety. And then in chapter seven, He's going to teach us how to judge people correctly by using discernment. He's going to show us how to persevere in our faith and also how to enter the kingdom of heaven. But before Jesus does all of that, and those are all very important things, he's going to conclude this segment of his sermon on the subject of love. And today we come across really one of the most distinctive teacher, uh, teachings in scripture. Uh, we see it in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength in Deuteronomy. We see it in the, uh, in the Gospels, for God so loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And we see this teaching also in the Epistles, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, It's love. Along with joy and peace and and long suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. God's love is the pinnacle of our faith. But we do have a problem this morning. Um, And the problem that we tend to have with love is that we define it differently than God does. And there's also a reason that it's taken us 21 sermons to get to this point this morning, this point on love. What's the reason? And why do you guys care? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and following. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, well, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what are you doing that's out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Jesus uses his teaching phrase one last time here, um, He's been in the habit of saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And we've learned that this teaching tool was called the halakha. It it means to walk. It means to go. So in other words, this was a very practical teaching tool for the Jews regarding scripture. It was a way that the scribes and the Pharisees taught really how to apply scripture to our daily lives. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is not asserting new laws when He says that you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. But what Jesus is doing, He's teaching the law as it was originally given. Jesus is upholding the standard that was intended from the very, very beginning. And we've watched Jesus do this repeatedly. He did it with anger. He did it with adultery, divorce, keeping promises, dealing with our so-called rights, and today we're gonna to see how, how how Jesus does this with love, this impossible standard of love. Back to verse 43, Jesus says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the first thing to note here is that there is not one verse in the Old Testament that says this: to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's why Jesus repeatedly has said, You have heard. You have heard it said, you have heard, you've heard. Who did they hear this teaching from? Well, just like the rest of the teachings, what Jesus is doing here, he's exposing the scribes and the Pharisees. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Really what this is, it's a half quotation from the Bible and it's a half fabrication from the religious leaders. So let's break it down. Let's look at the first part of this. Love your neighbor is in the Old Testament. It may be bolded in your Bible to indicate that in Leviticus chapter 19, we find this statement in what's called the holiness laws. So in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 17, it's written, do not harbor hatred against your brother, rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community. And here we go. But love your neighbor as yourself and the Lord says, I am the Lord. These are words directly from the Lord's mouth. So if Jesus is repeating what the scribes and the Pharisees taught, and we look at that verse, we should notice something that is in Scripture, but they left out. Right? The the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught, love your neighbor, but Scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh Uh-oh, they got it half right. But they, really what they did is they left the hard part out. Jesus continues to expose this superficial teachings of these religious leaders by revealing how they reduced God's standard of love. So question, why did they leave out as yourself? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the short answer is that racism was just as bad in the first century as it is today. Jesus deals with racism in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritans. Take a look at this. You find this in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. An expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, well, what's written? What's written in the law? How do you read it? So, in other words, what Jesus is doing, he's asking about this man's personal interpretation of Scripture. And that's very important because if this man's personal interpretation doesn't match God's intention, then he's got a problem. Verse 27, this man answers, he says, Well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this, this man responds with a paraphrase of the Shema. The Shema is a, a Jewish confession of faith. So he nails it. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And then he goes on to say, you do this, right? You love your neighbor as yourself. You love God with all of your heart and soul. You do this, you're going to live. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself. He wants to look good in front of everybody. He says, well, wait a second, time out, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? So this question really, it reveals his heart's attitude. He wants to put forth the least amount of effort possible. He wants to know exactly who to love and who not to love. So notice how Jesus answers this guy's question. He doesn't give a one word answer. He tells a story. In verse 30, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell into the hands of robbers, and then they stripped him, they beat him, and then they fled, and they left the guy half dead. So this was a common thing, even though it's a parable, this happened all the time. The the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, really steep. Really harsh uh, landscape, and, and many thieves would hide alongside the road because it was just easy to rob people. And in verse thirty-one, Jesus continues. He says, "A priest happened to be going down that road, <clears throat> and when he saw him, he passed by the other side." Well, a priest represented God, and evidently, this priest was late for an elders' meeting. He just he had to keep on walking. Verse thirty-two. The same way a Levite, when he arrived at the place, he saw him. He passed by the other side. He he walked along the other side of the road. A Levite is someone from the tribe of Levi. The Levites help the priest with the priestly duties. It's important to note here that both the, the priest and the Levite, they also know the Shema. And in verse 33, Jesus says this. He says, but... A Samaritan on his journey came up to him, a Jew, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. So here we see the G- Jesus as the as a storyteller. He's just a genius at this. Samaritan is a half Jew and a half Gentile. Samaritans have been around a long time, um, about seven hundred years before Jesus was even born. Historians, they're not really sure exactly um, um, the, the timing of, of, the, of the Samaritans. It's probably a pretty good bet, though, that the king of Assyria, when they captured the Jews back in 2 Kings chapter 17, that's when the Jews started to intermarry with the Gentiles. So the Jews considered the Samaritans a mixed race, and the Jews hated them for marrying Gentiles. So verse 34, so he, the Samaritan, he went over to him, who's a Jew, and he bandaged his wounds, he, he poured olive oil and wine on him, he put him on his own animal, he brought him to an inn, he, he took care of this man. The next day he took out two denarii, uh, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, you take care of him. So the, guy, he, the Samaritan gives the innkeeper some cash. And he says, this guy's hurt, you watch over him, and when I come back, I'm going to reimburse you for anything else that you spend. And then Jesus asks this obvious question in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think proved, notice that word proved there, to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And probably in a, a, a lump in this guy's throat, he says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, yeah the one who showed mercy, and then you guys go and do the same. See, the, the parable's point is not primarily to, to answer the question, who is my neighbor? The point of, of Jesus' parable here is to show God's definition of love to our neighbors. A, a neighbor is anyone who needs our help. The scribes and the Pharisees, what they did, though, is they redefine God's definition of neighbor, so, for example, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't hang out with anybody outside their social class, anybody who was poor. They, they weren't friends, nor were they friendly to those who were uneducated. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they not only redefined that word neighbor as just another Jew, but it had to be a, sp- a specific kind of neighbor, a specific kind of Jew. So, in other words, the scribes and the Pharisees, they define neighbor as someone who walk like them, talk like them, and look like them. You think, wow, how convenient is that? It's all about self-love. They loved themselves through other people. So back to verse 43, Jesus says, love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. That's what you guys have heard. So the scribes and the Pharisees, what they did is they not only edited And misinterpreted what God said in in Leviticus, but see, they also added words to God's mouth. They said, you're supposed to hate your enemy. This is what they taught. So key point number one, really important this morning, guys. Nowhere in scripture does it say that you are to hate your enemies. Nowhere does it say that. So where did these guys get this idea? They just make it up. Kind of, sort of. I mean, what they did is they took Scripture out of context. Let me give you a couple examples here. Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord examines the righteous, but He hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let Him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. Wow. Psalm 139 says, Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? Hmm. I hate them with an extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. So these Psalms are known as imprecatory Psalms. Uh, Let me define that for you. Key point number two. An imprecatory psalm, what it does, it it invokes divine vengeance on an enemy of God. So when you you hear people wanting to call down fire from heaven, right? This is an imprecatory psalm. Now there are numerous psalms that, that fall into this category, quite a few. Psalm 58, 68, 109, 137. But it's in these Psalms where we see King David, what he does here is he invokes curses on people. And this is where the scribes and the Pharisees justify their teaching to hate their enemies. But once again, guys, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are to hate them. The mistake that the scribes and the Pharisees made is the same one that we make today. They focused on themselves when reading Scripture Rather than focusing on God. This misapplication of God's word still done today. Just last week, I was on my YouTube channel looking at, at, at videos, and this woman is uh, she is she is calling down vengeance on her husband's enemies. She read this imprecatory psalm, and she said at the end of it, she said, you know, it's in the Bible, look it up for yourself. Never mind the fact that her husband is a prosperity preacher who just committed adultery. <laughs> all right? She, she took that out of context. She made that all about herself. An imprecatory psalm is, is what it does is it glorifies God, not ourselves. So back to verse 44, and Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies. love your enemies. So at this moment, you've probably heard like an audible gasp from the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees who were listening, they probably started laughing because they had to think Jesus was joking. Love your enemies. They were taught to hate their enemies. So not only is Jesus commanding his disciples to love their enemies, but he is—he's speaking of a particular type of love here. He's not referring, obviously, to a romantic or a sexual kind of love—that's eros. Nor is Jesus talking about storge, which is the love for your family. Uh, he's not referring to even being friends with your enemies. Philia. He uses the verb agapao. Love here is a verb, agape. So key point number three, this kind of love that Jesus is talking about, this agape love is an act of sacrifice and service. Agape love is an act of sacrifice and service. See, it costs us something to love someone this way. And that's why Jesus gave the example of the good Samaritan. Key point number four. Agape love, it may involve emotion, but it must include action. Agape love, it may involve some kind of emotion, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it must include action. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul, he provides 15 characteristics of agape love. All 15 are verbs, all 15 are actions, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4, he says, love is patient, meaning love is even-tempered. He says, love is kind. Love is, is useful to people. It's not just an emotion, it's useful. It's gentle with people. And then he goes on to say, love doesn't envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant. Love is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable. How many of you are irritable this morning? Put your hands down. It's okay. (laughs) Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, right? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but what it does do is it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Look at this. Love never ends. Love never ends. Key point number five, agape love is where your behavior overrides your feelings for that person. Agape love is where your behavior overrides your feelings for that person. So how do we we make sense of all of that? I mean, when you love those who don't like you, what happens is that you confuse them, right? You catch them off guard. You, You take away that energy For their dislike towards you, their distaste for you. I heard a story of a a young man that, that went into the military and for whatever reason, this man's superior officer got mad at this private and in front of everybody, he kicked him repeatedly. The next day, the officer found those same boots that he used to kick the private Thoroughly cleaned and shined. See, what happened is the the private cleaned the very boots that he was assaulted with the day prior. The superior officer broke. He he didn't know what to do with that. He couldn't understand it. He, He didn't understand that kind of agape love. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's saying that we must love people because of who they are. They are sinners who are broken and they are deceived by the world and they are deceived by Satan. We must love people because just like you and me, right? They are in need of God's grace. They're in need of God's forgiveness. Loving people we don't care for, this is not a human standard. It's a supernatural standard and and that's the whole point. Key point number six, think about this. If love is the greatest thing that someone can do, then loving our enemies is the greatest thing love can do. If love is the greatest thing that someone can do, then loving our enemies is the greatest thing that love can do. So, in other words, we will never experience love as God designed it if we don't learn to love our enemies. And if we think that's impossible, Just wait, there's more, right? Look at verse 44. Jesus, he goes on to say, and pray for those who persecute you. So if Jesus were like this spiritual trainer, he just added some more weight, right? Why would Jesus command us to pray for people we don't even like? I mean, these are the people that drive you crazy, the very, na- the very mention of their names, it-, it brings about this visceral, emotional response to you, right? But when you pray for these people, something divine begins to happen. You're the one that begins to change. And we think to ourselves, wait a second, I, I-, I don't need to change. He's the one that needs to change. That's why I'm praying for him in the first place. So he's going to change. That's going to take some time, but slowly and surely, I mean, you're going to see a change in yourself. Other people are going to start seeing a change in in you as well. By praying for people who drive you crazy, you're going to become more compassionate, more merciful. And that brings us to key point number seven. By loving and praying for our enemies, we overcome evil with good. By loving and praying for our enemies, we overcome evil with good. Did Jesus love and pray for his enemies? Luke twenty three thirty two perfect example of Jesus praying and loving his enemies. Luke writes this, he says, two others, two of these criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And then Jesus said this, as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then they divided his clothes and then they cast lots, meaning that they gambled for his clothes. The people stood watching even the leaders were scoffing. They were scoff. <sighs> he saved others. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah. If this guy's the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine, and they said, You know, if you're the king of the Jews, come on, Jesus, save yourself. The most interesting thing about Jesus' prayer here, where he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, is that in the Greek, this is an imperfect tense. Meaning, it's entirely possible that Jesus repeated that prayer over and over and over again. Brings us to key point number eight. Praying for your enemies proves that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Praying for your enemies proves that Jesus is the Lord of your life. So back to verse 44 here. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why, Jesus? Why do you want us to do that? Verse 45 tells us, so that you may be children of your father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So first note here that when we choose to love our enemies and when we pray for our persecutors, we demonstrate that something supernatural has happened to us. When we love our enemies and we go out of our way to serve people, we, the people that we don't like, the people we don't care for, we're showing, we're proving to the world that we're not of this world. Verse 45, he says, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is amazing. Theologically, we call this common grace. Common grace is God's goodness to a sin-cursed world. God allows the same rain to fall on a Christian farmer and at the same time, the most wicked farmer. So in other words, think about this. God's love is indiscriminate. God's love is non-selective. Everyone receives God's common grace. We see a lot of examples in the Old Testament here. Let me show you one in particular. Notice here how many times God says, I will. Genesis chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, he said as as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. He, and then God says, he says this, he says, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I'm going to bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. And then Abraham's listening to all this, right? Look, he fell face down and then he starts to laugh. And he said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah? (laughs) Can Sarah? I mean, God, she's 90 90 years old. Can she give birth? Remember who he's talking to. (laughs) So he thinks this, and then Abraham said to God, well, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. So time out. Ishmael is an illegitimate child. He was born from a lack of faith and a lack of trust on Abraham's part. Ishmael is a symbol of what man can do, not God. So God says this in verse 19. He says, no, that's not an option. Abraham, your wife, Sarah will bear you a son and you're going to name him Isaac. And I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for all of his future offspring. Now listen to this. He says, as far as Ishmael, as far as this illegitimate child that you love so dearly, I just heard you. And I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful. I'm going to multiply him greatly. He will He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will also confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. So yes, Ishmael received the love and the blessings of God through common grace. But Isaac was chosen. He was chosen for God's covenantal love, and that is different. But back to God's common grace here. God's common grace is given without merit. God chooses to bless because he chooses to bless. It's just that simple. It's not based on what we have done. It's not based on what we will do. And if God does that for everyone, shouldn't we? I mean, as as his children, shouldn't we reflect that same attitude as well? Verse 46 Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? In other words, big deal. Right? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. (laughs) Now, this is probably one of the biggest insults from Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees yet. Why? Because Jesus just compared them to the IRS. That's why. Tax collectors were... Many many tax collectors were Jews who extorted money from fellow Jews. Tax collectors were despised. Now keep in mind who penned this gospel. It's Matthew. He was a tax collector. The scribes and the Pharisees, man, I tell you what, after hearing this they must have been some kind of mad. Why? Because what Jesus does, he compares them to tax collectors. He, he compares the religious leaders to traitors. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were sure of one thing. And that one thing is that they were better than everybody else. And yet Jesus reveals the selfish love that they have for themselves. Now today, we, we tend to pride ourselves on being nice. We return favors and we're polite to those who are polite to us. And Jesus reveals you know what? <laughs> There's nothing special about that either. Everybody does that. Even gang members with, within the same gang love one another and are kind to one another, they care for one another. So God is not going to reward that kind of love. Remember, agape love, it cost us something. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? If you're just greeting people that you already know, big deal, right? He says, don't even the Gentiles do the same. So there's only one thing worse than a tax collector, and that's a Gentile. So, Jesus just pulled a double whammy on them. Jesus is asking, what makes you different? Why should you be rewarded for acting like everybody else? So, Jesus Jesus was showing the religious leaders here, they are no better off than heathens. See, guys, we're all sinners, all of us. The only thing that makes us different is the kind of sin that we engage in. We're all on the same playing field, and that's Jesus' point. So, he goes to verse 48, and he he says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, this is the summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you got to be perfect. Now, many people will say, well, you know, come on, Dustin, Jesus doesn't really mean that we're called to be perfect because he understood that no one's perfect. And then people will quote Romans, right? Everybody falls short to the glory of God. All right. But they, 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 they bank on he must have meant something else other than perfection. Other people try to soften this command by appealing to the Greek. The Greek word uh, perfect is teleos here. It's also translated as mature. Now that's interesting. Perfection and mature. Now I look at that and I go, okay, well, I don't know about you, but it's, it's hardly a relief to me to learn that we need only to be as mature as God. That's not a relief. Y'all with me? I mean, the, the meaning here in verse 48 is of perfection. And why is that? Because the subject is the Heavenly Father. He's the standard. Jesus' statement, really, it's similar to Leviticus 11.44, where God says, be holy. Why? I am holy. And if I'm your father, you have to, you're supposed to look like me. So what's the problem with be holy for I am holy? What's the problem with be perfect Well, we cannot be holy the way that God is holy, nor can we reach perfection before we get to heaven. And Jesus does know that. Um, Jesus Jesus also knows that we tend to pick and choose which commands of His that we're going to follow. We all do this. So instead of striving to build spiritual muscle, what we do is we just take the weight off, We, we simply reduce God's standard. And we think things like this, well, you know, God will forgive me. Sorry, God. I'll try harder tomorrow. It's okay. God will forgive me. It's called cheap grace. It cheapens our walk with the Lord. It's cheap grace. We don't want to take God's grace for granted. So what Jesus is explaining here is that God's moral standards never change. God's standard is perfection. So let's not miss Jesus' point throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount so far. He has left us with this overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy. Nobody has done. Nobody will, will reach the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is revealing how much we need Him as a Savior I mean, we need someone, and it's not just anyone, but someone who is both the Son of God and someone who is the Son of Man to empower us to meet God's standard of perfection. And if we as a church, if we don't love like this, that's called sin. And as a church, really, this message is a call to repentance, to make sure that we are striving to love like this. For those of you who don't believe, this is not a a call to repentance, but a call to salvation. And that's the beauty of the cross. Because spiritually speaking, our sins were transferred to Jesus on that cross. But see, it doesn't stop there. His perfect life is then transferred to us. It's the imputation of Jesus' perfect life. That's how we meet this impossible standard of love. We can't do this on our own. We don't have the capacity to do this. So what does it look like practically in our lives today? How do we apply this? Key point number nine. As we experience God verse by verse, and we apply these teachings into our lives, we are pursuing the very perfection of God. I know that's a long one, but it's important. As we experience God verse by verse, and we do something with it, right? We we have to apply these teachings. We have to implement them in in our daily life. We really are pursuing the very perfection of God. So how do we know that's to be true? Let's go back to verse 48. Let's look at it one more time. Be perfect Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's something really important here in the Greek we're not seeing in the English. The Greek is called a future indicative. And it could be translated this way. You shall be perfect. You shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word you there is emphatic. It means that Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples. Jesus does not expect the world to love enemies. Jesus does not expect the world to be perfect, nor should we. Key point number 10. If we refuse to love our enemies, we will never experience love as God loves. If we refuse to love our enemies, like Jesus tells us here, we will never experience love as God loves. We're going to be missing out on that. From a very practical standpoint, pursuing this impossible standard of of love, it looks like this. Let me just leave you with a, a few questions. When you're in your prayer time tonight or tomorrow or just throughout the week, ask yourself this. When you look into the rearview mirror of your life, am I more loving? Am I more kind than I was last year? Do I have more patience? Am I less irritable? And if I'm not, why? Why? Why is that? Father in heaven, may we ponder the impossible standard of love. May we understand just a little bit more of your love today than we did yesterday. Uh, Lord, and, and as we look into the rearview mirror of our lives, and as we're being stretched, and as you're pushing and molding and and shaping us into the very character of your son, Jesus. May we stop resisting and allow you to have your way with us. We're coming up on a new year. We have no idea what's getting ready to happen next year. We we don't even know what's going to happen next week. But Father, we cling to you. As imperfect as our love is, Lord, we do want to be perfect, and we can only do that by your grace. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.